0: Would you take that Bible this morning, and I'm so excited to turn back in the Gospel of John. Look back to John chapter 12. Maybe you've been coming for a few months, and uh, you're, we've had some times with some guests, but I know many of you have asked when we're getting back, and my heart is full to get back in this. So I want to turn you back to John 12, verse 27 through 36. Let me read the text. I've titled this, for this purpose I have come. It's part two. We were there a number of weeks ago, but let me catch you up. When Jesus prayed, you follow along as I read. It says in 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it, and that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, My light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is coming, and worse, excuse me, where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become Sons of light. And then just below that, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Let's pray. Let's bow our head and pray. Father, I pray that you might open our heart, that we might see this truth. And of course, Father, the Lord's table communion is prepared before us. So lead us into that truth, we pray, that you would be exalted. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It has been estimated that some would say 40 billion people or individuals have lived upon this earth since Adam. Obviously they speak dozens of languages, they practice many different religions, they have formulated many different cultures, but really every single human being shares just one vital thing, that his purpose or her purpose of life here and their eternal destiny afterwards depends completely on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, really, the key verse we think of the universe is found in Matthew twenty-two forty-two. what do you think about Christ? What do you think about Christ? Of course, when I say the name Christ, he has many different names and titles and descriptions in the Word of God. To the artist, according to Solomon 5, he is the one altogether lovely. To the architect in 1 Peter 2, he is called the chief cornerstone. To the baker, at least in John chapter 6, he is called the bread of life. To the builder, in the book of Isaiah, he is called the sure foundation. To the carpenter, in John chapter 10, he is described as the door. To the doctor, he is the great physician, Hebrews 8. To the educator, he is the new and living way, Hebrews 10. To the farmer, in Luke 10, he is the sower and the Lord of the harvest. And so many more titles and descriptions. But may I suggest just one of those titles to you as we prepare for communion, as we return to John chapter 12. It is that powerful statement by John the Baptist in John chapter 1, when he first laid his eyes on Christ, you remember, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, who what? who takes away the sins of the world. He is described there as the Lamb of God. He is described there as a sacrificial Lamb. And so what a privilege to not only return to John, but to remember his death in communion. Now as we walk into John chapter 12, this passage, more than most in all of the Scripture, is filled with gut-wrenching emotion. His death is near, Uh, it's very near. In fact, remember that as we drop back into John chapter 12, it is what we call the Passion Week. And it is Tuesday of Passion Week. Some believe that it's Wednesday of Passion Week and he will be lifted up on Friday. So we're just hours and maybe just a few days apart from his death. And what's interesting about Scripture is that almost all of the Scripture talk about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly all of the writers do. We heard a masterpiece out of Genesis 3 this last Wednesday. And many of the writers talk about the cross from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But what's intriguing about John 12 is, is this is the Lord's own commentary on the cross. It's His commentary, His heart to you, His words to you. I don't, they're not more important than the other writers, though it is the words of Christ, all of it is inspired, but this is the pen, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Apostle John, telling you about His commentary on the cross. Now, what I want to do with you this morning as we walk through that is look at four insights with you, four insights as he approaches his death. And then I want to look at the amazing implications for us as we prepare for communion. Just four insights, maybe just to frame it for you, I'll just put it along four words. There's an alarm, okay? Second insight, there's an answer. Thirdly, it speaks of the atonement. And then fourth, there's an appeal, okay? There's an alarm by the Son of God that is sounded. There is an answer given by the Father. There is an atonement that is made by the Son. And then there is an appeal by the Son, So let's look at those four insights and as we look at that, remember that you'll have the wonderful privilege to partake of the bread which speaks of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll have the wonderful privilege this morning to partake of the blood and here's his commentary on the cross for you. But let's look at the first insight, the sun's alarm. The sun's alarm. It was out of the sheer horror of the crucifixion that filled his heart so much that he burst out. Look at verse 27 when he says, now. Now, you'll note he's gonna say, now is my soul troubled. It's interesting, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Okay, in fact, he says in 31 again, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It was the Greek's question and we'll come back to that in just a moment, but here's first the son's alarm. He says, my soul is troubled. And weeks back we looked at that. It is a deep, deep anguish that the Savior has here that he expresses in his commentary. And I mentioned to you that this is not the anguish, this is not the trouble of physical suffering at the cross. Certainly that is there but there's more than that. This trouble, the word here, is as agony as he would go to the cross for you and face God's wrath. He burst out in anguish, in distress, in trouble, not over that physical pain, but if you will, facing the released wrath of God on him for your sins. Listen, as we come to communion in just a moment, you remember that. In fact, his agony, his trouble was so great that in Luke 22, it says there that his sweat became like great drops of blood down on the ground. So great was his trouble that medically his capillaries burst under the pressure and his blood at least in the other gospel begins to drip through his skin to redeem you so there were physical ramifications of course but the trouble was induced internally by the father pouring out his wrath on his son so he begins to pray look at verse 27 He says, and what shall I say? It's a rhetorical question. Father, save me from this hour. In other words, he knows what's coming. You know, I always thought, just just for a moment here, you get anxious and I get anxious over things we're not sure of in the future, am I right? Most of your anxiety, or my anxiety, has to do with something that's yet unknown. Not the Lord's. He's omniscient. He knows all things. His is true. It's not an anxiety here, but He prays in His humanness here, save me from this hour. In other words, Father, is there another way to redeem these people at Grace Church of the Valley to make it personal? Is there another way that he can redeem you in his humanness? But he's praying that. But look what he says in 27. He says, but, quickly, for this purpose I have come, he says, to this hour. I've come to this hour. And of course, the hour is the hour of his death. The hour of his exaltation, it's all in there. The hour of his ascension. But he's come to this hour. Now you remember, and I won't take you all throughout John's gospel, he talked about the coming hour. My hour has not come. But now he says, it's here. And my hour has come. And I've come to this very hour. And for this purpose, I've come to die in essence. You might ask, what motivated this prayer? But for this purpose I have come. Look again at the text in verse 28. Here's what motivated his prayer. Here's what motivated his obedience. Father, he says in 28, glorify your what? Name. Here is the controlling principle of the life of Jesus Christ. In Gethsemane, he prayed, not my will be done, but Thine will be done. It's a great thought for us even as we come to the Lord's table that your life and my life really isn't about us. It's about the glory of God. It's about the glory of His name. He says there in His prayer, glorify your name. In other words, make your name great. Make your character great. Make your attributes known Is the thoughts. And here our Lord loved his father's glory more than his own desire for this purpose I have come to die in your place. So here's the son's alarm. The son's alarm was over the gravity of taking your sin. It was over the gravity of taking your punishment. Your sin, my sin that should have been poured out at least prior to this on a sacrificial animal where that blood would be applied to the altar is now applied to the blood of His only begotten Son. Let me say this to you as you come to the Lord's table, just we do it corporately, but you do it individually. He stood in your place as your substitute. This is what we call the substitutionary atonement. You should have died. I should have died. You should have faced God's wrath. He steps in your place and he offers himself as the sacrificial lamb on your behalf. He became, Paul said in Galatians 3, a curse for you. The soul that sins, the scripture says, must die. And so the son in his humanness is alarmed not over the physical pain but over the agony of having the father turn his face from him turn his back on him as he bore the weight of your sin that's the son's alarm that's even the the son's prayer but would you note this that the father answers him look he says father glorify your name 28 says, then a voice came from heaven, interesting, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again, and so here's the second insight, from the son's alarm to the father's answer, and the father says, I like this, I have answered that prayer, in other words, I have already glorified it, you say, well, when did he do that? Now, it's a funny thing. you, you I think I, I addressed this, but I remind you when he says, I've glorified it, and we would ask, what is the it? And obviously, the it here is God's name, is God's character. And the Father responds, and the Father answers here, and he says, I, I have already glorified that. And I, and I think what he's talking about here in this answer, he's talking about the entirety of, of the ministry of the life of His only begotten Son. Here's why. Let me show you. Look over in John 7 just for a moment. Look back in your scripture in John chapter 7. Here's the life of Christ. This is precious. 7.18, it says there that the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory but the one who seeks the glory of Him who sent Him is true and in Him there is no falsehood. There in 718, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I've been seeking not my glory but the Father's. Look over in John chapter 8. Look there in verse 29. It says there does the Lord that He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. That's an aspect of His glory. Is the obedience of the Son to the Father's will. And He he says there, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Glance down in chapter 8 in verse 50. He says there, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And He is the judge. And so He's not seeking His own human glory. He is seeking the glory of His Father. So look back in John 12. I think you'll understand this in verse 28. He, he says there in 28, He said, I have glorified it. In other words, it's interesting that He's affirming the prayer. Jesus prays, glorify Thy name. And the Father answers and says, I have been glorified in your life. But look again in verse 28, future tense, and I will glorify it, his name again. And so here, the, he's dealing here with the future. In other words, the Father answers out of heaven, as you glorified me in your life, I will glorify my name again through your coming death. But you'll note there that the crowd didn't understand. Look at 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. They were confused. They weren't quite sure what it is. And then Jesus answered and he said in verse 30, the voice has come for your sake and not mine you would tend to think, hey, listen, the voice came for the sake of Jesus who prayed, Father, glorify your name, and for this purpose I have come. But Jesus comes back, and he actually says the voice came for your sake and not mine. You say, well, Scott, what's what's taking place here? I think he's giving a little bit of a future view to the disciples here. I, I think he's saying to them, in some time after my death, after my resurrection, as you write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the disciples would remember the voice of what I call the divine confirmation. It was the confirmation of the Father on the Son, the confirmation of his death, the confirmation of his suffering. And then they would therefore remember that the cross was not a place of defeat, that the cross actually is a place of victory. You say, well, how so, Scott? How is it a place of victory? Look, Jesus enters in now at verse 31. He says, now, here's how it's a place of victory. Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So the Father's answer to glorify His son in his name and the death of his son now results in this. Look at it in 31. It results in the judgment of the world. In other words, at the cross, sin would be judged. Sin, of course, as we know, even heard on Wednesday night, brings judgment. Sin brings a curse. This is the judgment of God upon sin Beloved, the wickedness of sin is so vile, is so heinous to a holy God that sin demands judgment. And so, as Jesus goes to the cross, it is judgment on this world. Listen, he died in your place for your sin and you need to remember that your sin brings about judgment and when he was being uh, when he was on the cross he was being judged for sins you committed he doesn't incur the guilt of that sin but he did step in your place as your substitute and bear your punishment of your guilt but the cross also brings us to a decision I think when he says, now is the judgment of the world, there's even something beyond the judgment of sin. Back up in the context in verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Then he says this, whoever loves his life It says, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. I also believe that the judgment on this world is that at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and even in his life, it puts people into two categories. It puts them into those who are of the light who follow him, and those who are of the darkness whose deeds are evil. And so as he goes to the cross, Jesus, in response to the Father's answer, said, now is the judgment of this world. Look at verse 31 again. He even says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In other words, at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ not only accomplished the forgiveness for your sins but the place of the cross was also a place where he would defeat Satan, where he would defeat uh, death itself, where he would defeat the grave itself. And so he not only goes to the cross for you to take away your sins and deal a death blow to the judgment that the world demanded because of their own sin, but he deals a death blow to Satan. He cast him out. You say, well, how so? Look in your Bible in the book of Colossians, just scripture as we look there. Look over in Colossians chapter 2 and as we think of the Lord's table before us. You remember this in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. So clearly does Paul say there. In 2.13, and you. It it would be like, uh, I just say that's a second person to you this morning by the authority of the Word of God. He's speaking to the church at Colossae, but, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. What did he do? By canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with the legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love that little phrasing. I remember just in my own study through the years, and maybe I've shared this with you, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. If you were to walk through a Roman prison in those days, you would see outside, they were often in the catacombs underneath or in some kind of cave where they kept these criminals, at least the criminals against Rome. And if you were to go under those, they would often be built in wood and so forth. And on the, on the outside of the post, looking into the jail would be a certificate of debt. And the certificate of debt would be what that particular criminal had committed against the society. It would spell it out guilty of insurrection, guilty of murder, guilty of being a theft, guilty of blaspheme and blasphemy. And look what the, it says here you were dead. In your trespasses verse 14 what he did is he cancelled out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands in other words this look at verse 14 he set aside nailing it to the cross it's as though he took that record of debt off that post that you sinned against him he took it off and put it up upon the cross and nailed it there but he not only defeated sin, look on in verse 15. It says there that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What a great thing. He not only defeated sin and death, but he defeated the authorities. defeated and cast out the ruler of this world who held us in if you will, in a vice grip to his control until the coming and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the death on the cross, God gave his son as a sacrificial lamb for the world. In the death of Christ, he actually bore much fruit. Look back at John for a moment. Look back on this. It's not a place of defeat. It's a place of victory. Do you remember that in verse 24 when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, and the fruit would be you. So here the grain of wheat falls to the earth and it dies, obviously, that it may bring forth a harvest. So too, the death of the Son of God results in the salvation of many. So beloved, here's the Son's alarm, but here's the Father's answer. And the Father's answer to our Lord's death continues to glorify His name by securing your victory over sin and death. I think that voice came out to confirm that to the disciples who would remember that he told them this and that voice was there. Listen, just one more scripture. Would you turn in your Bible to Isaiah just for a moment? Isaiah 53. And and again, I'm thinking of the father's answer. The father's answer to the son's alarm that I have glorified it and I will glorify it again again. Of course, that wonderful section of Scripture in Isaiah. Don't forget this in verse 10. Here's a little bit of the Father's answer. Here's a little bit of God, the Father's heart for you. You know this in verse 10 of 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of Yahweh. Watch this. To crush Him. He, God, has put Him the son the suffering servant to grief and when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offering as offspring he shall prolong his days the will of the lord shall prosper in his hand in other words god's crushed his son god crushed his son God, if you will, let his only begotten son go die for you. I mean, think about it this way. He says again, I have glorified it in your life, and I will glorify my name again in your death, because in his death, he's going to bear fruit. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish Of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, I take that by his knowledge of the servant, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted, what? Righteous. And he shall bear, it says at the end of 11, their iniquities. In other words, in the son's death, he glorifies the father. So, beloved, as you look back at John's gospel now, just for a moment, you have the son's alarm. You have the father's answer. And in the father's answer, it's almost the father's testimony. But third insight here, back in John 12, is you have the son's atonement. And it's fascinating. The father answered, but now the the son is going to, if you will, tell you and describe for you in his own commentary, his own death, he says in verse 32, and I, here's the Son's atonement, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What a wonderful statement. I think you would just take that, and we should, just as for what it says, that when the Son of God is lifted up on the cross... He is going to draw, it's interesting that he says all people to myself. Now, just a little bit here, that term lifted up has a a double reference, I believe, okay? It, number one, refers to the physical lifting up of the Lord Jesus Christ in two days up on his cross. But secondly, that word lifted up, sometimes in the scripture, refers to his lifting up into his exaltation into his ascension, into that place where he's at the right hand of God. Is it that he was lifted up physically at the cross? Or what is he talking about here being lifted up in his exaltation and ascension into glory? And I really believe the answer to that is both. And throughout the Scripture, you see both. In fact, in Isaiah 52, you don't have to turn there. It says, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be, it says there, high and lifted up. Isaiah 52, 13. And he shall be exalted. Both of them are used. But primarily here, when the Lord Jesus Christ says, when I am lifted up from the earth... He's talking primarily, I believe, about the crucifixion. You say, well, why do you believe that? Well, the next verse, let the Scripture do the interpretation. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, okay? In other words, he's speaking here about being lifted up on the cross. Now, you'll note something in the text again. Look at 32. He says, when I'm lifted up from this earth on the cross, he says, in essence, I will draw all people to myself. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that he draws all people to himself? Look back just for a moment in John 6, okay? It's interesting that Jesus here In his atonement says, I will draw all people to myself. But will you note this in John 6.44? There Jesus said, no one can come to me in 6.44 unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there in 6.44, you've got the Father drawing. But in John 12.32, you have the Son drawing. Drawing, I don't think that should be so surprising. The son does what the father does, and that's all throughout John. But I do want to make this distinction for you, that the drawing in the two places is a little different, obviously. The father draws, 6.44. The son draws in 12.32. But the focus in John 6 is on the individuals, listen carefully, whom the father gives to the son. In other words, before the creation of the world, before the Genesis account, God the Father gave God the Son a love gift. He gave Him you if you're in Christ. And the Father is in the business sovereignly of drawing those to Himself whom the Son without fail preserves. And at least in 644, look at it, I will raise them up on that last day day. In other words, he is the one preserving God the Father. Now, what's intriguing though in the gospel of John is not only is salvation a sovereign work of God, but you see something else. Look back just for a moment in 637. He, he opens and has language like this, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and then this in the same chapter in 37 and what does it say whoever comes to me I will not cast out so on the one hand it's the father no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him but then in 637 side by side whoever comes to me I will not cast out and so here this is a, you see both aspects of that. Now obviously this drawing is a divine drawing. God must show the initiative. God must initiate. God must enable if, you, if you will, to believe. God draws you in 644. It's stressing the divine sovereignty and salvation. The Father is not advising you. The Father is drawing you, if you will. In fact, look at 639. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. The Father gave the Son a love gift, and that love gift is you, and this is why there's eternal security. If he gave you to the Son before the foundation of the world, believe me, you can't undo your salvation. All, it's right there in 39. Go listen to that tape. It says there, this is the will of all that he has given me. I will lose nothing. I will raise it up on the last day. You say, well, how does the Father draw? Well, obviously, he draws through the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, what, what do you mean by that, Scott? He exposes your sin. He exposes your self-righteousness. I mean, go back to that moment when you came to Christ. You were oblivious to the work of God. You might have even, like me as a young teenager, had my fist in the face of God. But he began to woo me. He began to draw me. He began at that one point to expose my sin He began to show me the need of a Savior, if you will. He began to expose my, your self-righteousness. He began, did He not, to awaken your conscience. He began to awaken your need of the Savior. The Holy Spirit then at that point began to override your pride and your stubbornness. And as he begins to show you the greatness of the Savior, you bow your knee. Hey, listen, it could be right now he's exposing your sin. That's how I pray. It could be that in the sovereignty of God that he's, you're running from him, and he's beginning to open your eyes that he's coming after you. And so the Bible says only those who the fathers draw can come to him. And yet, look back in 540. Look back there. And yet, he said to the leaders in 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they who bear witness about me. Now watch this in 540. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They rejected him. You say, well, Scott, how can you explain the sovereignty of God and human responsibility? I can't. On the one hand, he's drawing And it's an irresistible draw. But on the other hand, when people perish, they refuse to submit their life to Christ. Now, look back. I want to show you something in John 12. I'm trying to explain this to you. When it says there in 32 that I will draw, Jesus says this, all people to myself. Well, what's he talking about there? All people to myself. That question, do you remember? was triggered by the Greek question. Go back to 1220. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That's me, I'm Greek. (laughs) And it just means among those who went up to worship. These are probably God-fearing Greeks. In In essence, they're Gentiles. And verse 21, they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and he asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And it's interesting, Philip has a Greek name. Maybe they felt confident with him. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew went and told, and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Fascinating. Do you remember that? The hour has what? Come. Wow. Wow. All throughout John's gospel, my hour's not come, my hour's not come, my hour's not come. The Greeks ask a question, and their question was, they want to see Jesus. Verse 21, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And as soon as that question comes, it triggers, if you will, that his hour has come, his hour of his death, the hour of his resurrection, exaltation. But the Greeks, the Gentiles' question demonstrated by Jesus' response. He was now prepared to die, interesting, for the sins of the world. So then you say, well, Scott, what does that mean then in verse 32? When I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Is it all people? Does it mean that by his death that all are saved? And the answer, of course, would be no. This is not universalism. The all people here, again, in 1232, refers to both Jew and Gentile alike. In other words, he's not just the Savior for Jewish people. Let me make this comment to you. It's all kinds of people without distinction, without distinction. He's not just the savior of Jewish people. He's the savior of all people without distinction, Jew and Gentile alike. In other words, it's all without distinction, but let me make this statement to you. It is not all people without exception, okay? We say, what do you mean without exception? Well, verse 31, his cross and his death now is the judgment of this world. Judgment is a major theme through John's gospel. And so he came to die for all kinds of people without distinction, but not without exception. He will judge those. And we heard that this morning in Scott's equipping class. Now listen, this is not new just go back in your Bible to John chapter 10 for a moment. Look back there. Do you remember when we were looking at I am the good shepherd, that whole theme there? But remember, he says this in ten fifteen. just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Who are the sheep? You. But who does the sheep include? Look at verse 16. Amazing. I have other sheep That are not in this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. In other words, the gospel goes to all, it goes to people in Dubai. Listen, you need to come exhorting you on July 8th and support this family. Now you're you're awesome at this. But the Zellers have never been to one of our corporate worship services. And they're ministering the gospel in the Middle East. And you know what, it's neat. He doesn't just save people, you know this in America. He saves people in Dubai. And their church is larger than ours. I want you to come hear him and love on him and love on little Moses who, toned Fui. you know, I don't know how he said that. Just, you say, how can I do that? You can pray for them. In fact, I thought it would be in the bulletin today. We'll get the schedule in the bulletin. We want them to feel the love of Christ just like you've loved every other missionary. You say, well, why? Because Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Would you look over at John chapter 11? They're coming on July 8th, and they'll be here at 9 a.m. We're gonna pack out the Generations building. You come, you say, why would I come? Because we care about the gospel. We care about the Zellers. We support the Zellers financially. You support the Zellers financially, okay? So come, hear what God's doing in their midst. But look at John chapter 11. Do you remember when Jesus said this regarding one of the prophecies? When it said, when he was talking about Caiaphas there, uh, and Caiaphas said in verse 50, 1150, You do not understand it is better that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation, interesting, whole nation should perish. For he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And now this, and not for the nation only, but also To gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is the plan of God. Remember, we heard this this morning in Acts 1.8, that you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the what? To the uttermost parts of the world. What Jesus is emphasizing is the Father draws. Jesus saying, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile alike. But you're gonna catch the flavor of this emphasis in this, that the gospel goes out to all. Look at verse 25, come back to the context there, 1225. You'll notice that it's, it's not uh, exclusive there, whoever, Loves his life, loses it. And now, this 1225. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. That gospel invitation goes out to all. Look at verse 26 If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Like I would just say, that would be you this morning. Nobody in here can say, I'm not part of the elect. If anyone serves me, verse 25, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There is an expansion, if you will, of the gospel here that's marvelous. All may approach him freely without distinction. In fact, just look back in John 3. Do you remember this? In John 3, don't miss this expansion. Remember when it says, and very clear to our passage, as Moses 3.14 lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What a great text. Remember when he said to John the Baptist that he takes away the sin of the, what? The world. And so we need to be giving this gospel out in Dubai. We need to be giving this gospel out to Albania. Salvation, beloved, and you know this, is not granted upon bloodlines or race. It is granted upon the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is called the Savior to the woman at the well in 42 of the world. In fact, back in John 6, you don't have to turn there, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him has eternal life. He said in 637, and whoever comes to me, this includes you, I will not cast out. Did he not say in John 1, to all who did receive him and believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let me ask you, have you believed on him? Not has your dad, or your mom, or your grandpa, or your grandpa, have you believed on him? You said, well, pastor, I'm just not sure if he's drawn me. Well, it says this in Acts 2, 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? It says this in Romans 10, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, Romans 10:13, who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Let me just say this: the Bible never says that sinners miss heaven because they are not elect, but because they neglect so great a salvation. So listen, put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ.